Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you like what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel, find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week. How's it going? John here, the host of Spear Talk. Uh, today, we get to welcome our friend Jason Pat to the show. Jason is the author of The Road Death Traveled. He's also an eight-year Navy veteran, uh, including a tour in Iraq. He In 2019, he became a diplomat of the American Board of Medical Legal Death Investigators. He spent the majority of his career, almost 20 years, in law enforcement, uh, including the Lake County Sheriff's Office, the Lake County Coroner, Coroner's Office, uh, as a quote-unquote death investigator. And uh, Jason, it's great to have you on here. Thanks, brother. Thanks for having me on, man. <laughs> Uh, I want to get started. This is you're the first, uh, not the first veteran, not the first author, but you're the first person uh, with your background in terms of the investigating, coming across crime scenes and stuff like this. And uh, I want to say your book, uh, which I implore everyone to definitely pick up, um, super fasting, super rad. It's an easy, great read, and uh, I'm just fortunate you're able to put it out there um, at a time where. I think some of these other books I've looked at and tried to kind of understand what you do for a living uh, is, is kind of daunting. The way you approached how you wrote this book uh, came across as someone who is a former law enforcement officer as a way I would want to read or write a book. And it, uh, I mean that in the highest sincerity because it's a, it's a great read. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I uh, I wrote that for, for a lot of reasons like that. Uh, you know, these uh, a lot of people, they pick up a book, you know, like you said, you pick up this book and uh or or like pick up other books and you know you're like oh god yeah. okay cool yeah well that story sounded the same and chapter two starts the same chapter three and four and five and six and they all start the same you know uh especially when you're dealing with true crime nonfiction, which is which is what this book is and you know i wanted to do the exact opposite you know i wanted to cut all that crap out and just get to the no pun intended but the meat of the story um and just get to the exciting weird funny sad you know the part that was just interesting and just get to it um you know and then move on next you know well it's interesting because the friends i know that were either are either pallbearers uh or people who worked in the military law enforcement that, that did some crime scene stuff or came across crime scene stuff i've noticed they've all had this very dark sense of humor and i gravitate towards that because i it's what I my humor I consider very dark, but I've also gone and dealt with some stuff where it helps me kind of cope with the madness and chaos that you kind of go through. Is that for you? Especially it comes across in the book as you're very come off as very witty, sarcastic. You laugh at stuff that I would laugh at, but is it your way of coping? Like most people that deal with bodies and like crime scenes and stuff like that. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, anybody that and you know, you're a you're a Leo. You know, you were a, you were a law enforcement officer, and and anybody in law enforcement, uh, you know, fire business nurses, and I've even noticed teachers too. Uh, you know, anybody that kind of deals in, in the public with that, that is a way of coping. And you know, I talk about it in the book. I talk about it in my podcast uh, as well. You know, we're not when you see us on scenes and and you see us in the ER or you see us, you know, wherever we're at. And we're laughing and we're joking and we're, you know, you know, talking about stuff, you know, we're not, we're not laughing at the victims. It's never funny when someone loses their Correct. life, you know, or something like that. It, it has, 
if you don't laugh or you don't find a way to, you know, to, to, to find humor in this kind of stuff, it'll kill you. It really, really will. And there's a, there's a mental health aspect that I cover in the book um, about that. And, and it's true. It really, really, really will. And uh, I, you know, you're right. You caught you, you're, you hit the nail on the head. There's a definite dark humor aspect to this book. There's a dark humor aspect to the podcast and there's a dark humor aspect to the profession. Yeah. Excuse me, to the profession itself. So, yeah. I remember uh, was at the White House. Um, we got a call, a suicide jumper at the Hotel W. And he wasn't even doing a suicide. He just climbed over from the top bar and fell down to the sidewalk. And the first people to show on scene, like someone actually saw it in process as he fell. And it, as we kind of get up there and you see like the blood kind of drip down the sidewalk. It's not like a hill. And you start you just smell stuff differently. It just, you just kind of feel the presence of death. And it's like, it was the most odd feeling for me. Cause I didn't actively get to do like, no one, I mean, the first person around there obviously did the CPR, the protocol and stuff, even though you don't know, let someone else determine the dead body, but you're even being in the presence of that, you're kind of like, Oh my God. Like it took me a couple of days to kind of not walk by that area or just to be like, man, how do I process this? Because that stuff happens all the time, unfortunately. It's for you to have years and years of this from military and law enforcement. How do you how do you keep like pushing, suppressing this stuff? Like, how do you kind of, do you ever have moments where you kind of wake up from a dream or a nightmare or have a PTSD episode where you're like, oh, I remember this, I can't shake this part of me or something reminds you of something else? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, there were those days or those cases that, that you never forget, especially with kids, you know, that was always the worst, you know, we, I, you know, there was, you know, I, I don't know how graphic you want to get here, but you know, I, I remember, yep. yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, this one, you know, there, there was a case where there was a, a kid who had, um, uh, he was boating with his family and, um, he fell overboard and um there was another boat you know as the boat was going this way there's another boat coming this way kid falls overboard boat goes across and cuts the kid's head off right yep so you know what do we have you know we're doing our, our investigation and we're doing everything we have to do um but what people fail to realize is that there's still a child's head in that water so we have to go in that water and pick up that kid's head and walk ashore with it you know so you don't forget stuff like that, you know, or, or if you have a child, you know, and the child gets hit by a train or, you know, the child is killed by their parents out of rage or whatever the case may be. Um, and you're carrying that child, you know, in your arms, you know, and then later that night, your child falls asleep on the couch and you're carrying your child to bed in that same manner, you know, things like that will hit you. Yeah, uh, you know, so that's 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 the reality of of that that side of the job that you know that that does hit you whether people want to talk about it or not. And back in the day, you know, getting help was frowned upon. It just it was because yeah, of course it, you know you were weak, um, and then it was a stigma. You know, you were weak, um, and also you know nobody trusts their department, nobody trusts the government, nobody trusts the county or their city. Um, you know, because the fear is always well shit if. I go and get help, they're going to take my gun. And if they take my gun, they're going to take my job. And yeah. that's why you have, you know, a lot of officer suicide. That's why you have all that kind of stuff. And, and, you know, that's why um, no one went and saw the EAP or nobody went and did that kind of stuff 
thankfully nowadays that's more accepted and people are now actually bringing in uh, help. Uh, when I went to, uh, I worked my way up as, as chief. You no, know, I retired as the chief of my department. Um, and I started going to the IACP conferences, which is the International Association of Chiefs of Police. And what they were pushing there, uh, which was really cool, which was, you know, not only make sure your people get help, but bring in the help. And so that's what, you know, I did is I started bringing in counselors, you know, and making sure that these people are not even associated with, with our county. Like, I, you know, you don't trust the AAP, EAP? I wouldn't either. Screw them. Here's the number. These are volunteers. Outside help. They have nothing to do with us. Call them and, you know, they'll get you the help you need. Right. Um, and I think that's being more accepted nowadays. And I think it's pretty awesome. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of a more accepted practice now. I don't know if this is intentional when you put the book out, but in terms of like one of the most graphic intense scenes obviously affected you was one of your first mm -hmm. scenes where the woman uh, was murdered. Uh, her baby, she was pregnant, was murdered. And the father eventually got the female suspect. I don't want to give away too much of it, but yeah, this whole thing where that the way you put that in the book, it's, it hit you so over the head. It's like, even when I read that chapter, my first thought was I've had a, my mom was pregnant. My sister's, had kids or all these people I know that were pregnant or it could, could have been a similar situation uh, with a boyfriend, not boyfriend, living alone type thing. And that could have happened. And it's just like, it's crazy how life works like that. And for your first seed to be of that magnitude, I don't know how you were able to, Were you kind of, you just step back and like, okay, it can't get much worse than this. And obviously it has, but how do you, if you were a rookie again, or another rookie was with you, took some rookies out today and did that, how many of them are going to do a 20-year career like you did without or step away or just do something else in law enforcement? Well, you know what? That's, that's, a, that's a difficult question to ask because even though I – so I was a rookie, but I wasn't. That was my first um, death investigation with this department. I had already been in law enforcement for uh, about five years at that point, just not with this department, but I had never really – seen obviously any kind of scenes like that right uh but i had been in the military and i was in iraq before so seeing dead bodies uh was something that i had a lot of exposure to um just not with that type of a magnitude of a pregnant mother and you know a crime scene of that just, uh, uh, yeah and yeah. a fetus being shot to death in the mother's belly and all that yep. uh, you know but that but this is a different era too of people and Correct. kids and I'm going to, I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, yep. So, you know, seeing that for the first time, I, I don't know how many people would, would stick around. I really, really don't because, you know, people get into law enforcement or forensics nowadays because they see these TV shows and they think that this is, you know, what it's all about. Um, I, I think that may have chased a lot of people away. It may have. Um, thankfully for me, I had years of seeing this kind of stuff, so it didn't affect me as much. Um, yep. obviously it affected me, but not as much as it probably should have, you know? So when you talk in the book about to go kits, basically you get a call, uh, Hey, we got to go to this crime scene for those that aren't, haven't read the book yet. Can you kind of talk about what, a like, when you get a call, like what's your basic, what, like, what are the stuff you essentials you have to have on you? Because when you get the call, are you told specifically, Hey, this is a dismemberment. This is an arson. This is, or are you kind of giving like a blanket? We got an individual that's pronounced dead. This is what you have. Like, how do you kind of prepare yourself with your gear and even mentally too? So in each of our squads, for the most part, there there was like a, there, there was some general stuff, you know, 
Um, and it also depended what your specialty was. So certain people had certain specialties. There are some people that specialize in accident investigations, you know, fire and arson investigations, you know, water, I, you know, stuff like that. So people had different types of things to collect different types of evidence based on their specialty. But there was also the very basics. Um, people had, you know, body bags, water body bags, um, different kits to process bodies, different types of scenes, obviously your cameras, your flashlights, you know, measurement tools and, and things like that. Um, so like I said, it, it does vary. And as far as, you know, getting a heads up when you read the book, um, you'll know that some departments were just better than others. You know, when, yeah. when you come to patrol, um, you know, sometime, you know, I would say, shouldn't say sometimes most of the time, uh, most, you know, the departments were pretty good about, Hey, you know, we got an I one one call and we arrived on scene and we have a, B and C um, this is what we got. So before, you know, we left um, or, you know, if we had to head back to the department to pick up a couple extra tools or a couple extra, you know, things to collect certain kind of evidence, we were able to do that. And sometimes we're kind of like, well, I don't know what's going on. I don't really know. You know, and right. then you get there and you're like, motherfucker, you knew exactly what was going on. You're just being an idiot because right. you are an idiot. And now we have a lot of extra work to do um, or it's going to take longer because now we have to go all the way back to collect to get stuff to, to actually do our jobs. Um, so, you know, that's, that's pretty much how that worked. How do you transport the bodies? I mean, obviously there's like body bags, stuff like that, but if it's like a gruesome scene where body parts, but you're also trying to figure out who did this or whatever, like, how yeah. do you kind of transport like body parts or blood analysis stuff or like without contaminating it to the point where you don't, can't actually help solve this crime? Yeah. So, uh, there was a it was a contractual removal service um usually there's an ambulance company that that's hired at least where we were at yeah um, and then and then we would follow them uh, just for chain of evidence type of stuff you know to say that you know the body was placed in in this vehicle and then we would follow them um you know all the way to the morgue and then you know obviously the when they were in there there you know the body was placed in the bag and the bag was tagged and it was sealed so there was no one could get to it and there's a whole bunch of protocols that were right. put in place to make sure that you know the nothing was tampered with so and how many times would you have to go through different parts of your own gear like vests or pants or shirts that, that are contaminated with the blood and body parts like, it seems like some of the stuff you detailed in your book that comes of the crime scene just like how do you not go through uniforms every other day oh you do i mean we ha i mean you I mean, especially before I got promoted and stuff and, 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 you know, you're, you know, you're on the road and you're, you're doing stuff. You're not, you not only did you have the uniform on you, but you usually had two to three extra in your locker uh, or in your office, right. uh, you know, ready to go at all times. And then there's obviously the showers of the department that, you know, so, you know, there's, you, you kept some stuff extra. You uh, when you mentioned like chain of custody of items and stuff like that, what are your cases you talk about here? The guy that was crucified, um, <laughs> the guy, well, it, the guy that crucified himself. Yeah, the guy that crucified himself. Yes, so let's, like, let's 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 put that out there. He wasn't uh, he, he crucified himself. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you the you it was so, and I get back to your humor when you describe how one of your partners is taking the crucifix into their cruiser. To, to put away I'm, sorry, his... I'm still picturing this guy carrying that big ass cross <laughs> on his shoulders he's walking it was hilarious and i'm just yeah. like this is such a crazy this is a piece of evidence for a guy that killed himself trying to emulate life of jesus and it's just yeah. like what do you want i mean your first impression like, i would i would laugh 
we, we were. We were fucking cracking <laughs> up. Like... I mean, I mean, because we're sitting there, we're taking our fucking pictures, and there's another, you know, <laughs> there's another guy. Because <laughs> you know, you see, I, you know, I'm not a religious guy. I'm just, right. I'll put that out there, okay? But you know, you I, obviously, I've been to church and I've been to synagogues yeah, and mosques, and you know, for celebrations and funerals and whatever. And you know, I've been to the Catholic holidays, you know, and they you know, you've got the guys carrying the crosses and whatever. Yeah. And, and so you see that in these, <laughs> these ceremonies, but now you're at a house where some guy kills himself on a cross. He made. I mean, this fucking cross dude was, I, I mean, huge. dude, this thing was ginormous made of, I mean, this guy did a great job when he was woodworking, but to see like when one of these guys, your part, one of your partners carrying the cross it's... over his shoulder like the priest is in a cathedral, you know, and you're like, you know, I, I, I mean, we were all dying. I mean, it was hilarious. It's such um, a, cause I, but cause it, it, and he wasn't doing it to like be funny. He was carrying the evidence out to the vehicle. It's just the only way to carry it. I mean, but it was the only way to carry it. And we have all at the same time, we're dying. And at the end, he kind of stopped and looked, he was like, he didn't understand what we were all laughing at. But when we came back in, we were explaining it to him. We were like, God damn, one of you know, obviously then we it would be evidence, so we, we can't, but uh, you know, but in our heads we were like, Oh man, that would have been great. Yeah. Um, it's such but, a weird it's like stuff like that. I, I assume when you come across crowd scenes that are more heavily lead towards religious, whether it's uh like the I think one of my friends, it's uh he worked out in Jamaica for like I don't know, he's doing undercover work for the DA type stuff and they came across like this posse that had like sacrificed someone, but with goats, and, like all this weird stuff. And it's like, oh, we've had that. And so it's like that religious tied stuff. There's something super like eerie about it because every time you watch a movie or TV show, it's always geared to like the supernatural or you're trying to summon the devil or all this crazy stuff. But there's actual people that do this stuff. And to for you to kind of come across these scenes where you're like, man, this is wild. Wild. I mean, that, that's what this book was for. I mean, you know, the, the original title of the book was You Can't Make This Shit Up. That was yep. that was the original title. But I said, nah, that really wasn't kitschy enough. Um, because, you, I mean, you, when you read these, you're like, no way. I mean, when you read this book, how many times did you read these scenes and you're like, come on? No, it, honestly, no, it's it, come on. Seemed, it seemed like a super serious R-rated spoof documentary on death. And, and you lived it. It's like, again, how you wrote it, broke each of these things down. Like they're not really connected per se, how you break down the cases and different aspects of how you go through your career, but they're so unique. And I, I'm sure there's a lot more you can put in each one too, but it's, it hits you so over the head with like the guy crucified himself. You're like, what? And the next one you're dealing with a, uh, a thing where a child's killed in a car seat. And then obviously I want to talk about how yeah. your, your work led to changing some of the stuff there, but it's, Man, it's just so fascinating. Like death is such a, it's somber, it's serious, obviously, but you're kind of like how some people, how easily death could be avoided too in some of these situations. A lot of these people seem either too stupid or unaware of what they're doing actually could lead to death. And I think for me, that's the hardest part where I look back and I'm like, this is easily avoidable if you just done what was the correct thing to do. Yeah. I mean, uh, I actually, I have a ton of, tattoos as you can see and um one of the tattoos i have on me in in latin which is one of the when i came and we changed our patches and all that stuff 
Um, and in one of the patches is what I have tattooed on my arm um, in Latin, which is mortui vivos docent, which means the dead teach the living. Um, and and I'm very, you know, I, I, I believe in that. Uh, right. Because look, listen to what you just said. Man, is that avoidable? Man, do, do you know many things that I now don't do or I see something I'm about to do and go, oh, well, I'm not doing that because I remember this one time that guy climbed a ladder, but he was carrying that. And when he fell, A, B, and C happened. Now he's dead. Yep. So is it, did it ever get frustrating for you to come across the same scene over and over again or like a variation of the same type of situation where you're kind of like, oh. Come on, guys, guys, girls, what are you doing here? Drug, like, this man. is stupid. Like, how many times can I fucking go in a house and see a needle in someone's arm? Right. Or their face covered in white powder, you know, because they're, you know, I, yeah, that kind of stuff. You know, the, yeah, we got a guy who OD'd on heroin. Yeah. All right, cool. All right. right. See you soon. Great. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff was, you got so many a day that was, it was just like, mm-hmm. You know, or so and so shot himself or hung himself. All right. Right. Um, Would you talk about uh, the the major, like either homicide, suicide? You kind of talk about undetermined death. And I guess my question is: Is that something? And again, obviously, when you read the book, you get the answer. But for the listeners, I was interested because I'm. How long does could an undetermined death stay undetermined? Now, does that involve? going back and keeping the case open or new evidence comes in how often do you come across undetermined deaths in your career so undetermined deaths stay undetermined forever until new evidence comes forward to make a determination um once a once a death is ruled whether it's a homicide suicide accident um you know it's there forever it can never be changed you know it's it's done so um, but if it's undetermined, uh, there's a reason for it. That's because there's not enough evidence to sway one way or the other. And a lot of times, especially with babies, um, when you're dealing with like SIDS or what they call SUIDS now, it's they change that. Um, it's yeah. now sudden unexplained infant death syndrome instead of sudden infant death syndrome. Um, especially with that, a lot of times you'll see undetermined um, on the death certificate. And that will never change. Um, you know, I've, I've had you know, pretty much one, I have one, and I'm not going to spoil it. You obviously got to read it. Uh, I've only had one case in my whole entire career. That's undetermined. Um, it's what I call my legacy case that needs to be its own movie, to be honest. Um, it's a crazy, crazy story and it's in the book. Um, but it's my only one. So when you, as I've always been fascinated with like the celebrity death stuff. And like, when you look at something with a Kirk Cobain, OJ Simpson, um, some of the most famous at the time people you all these conspiracy theories like oh there's corruption and a lot of people are first on scene and stuff but as a someone with your career background and obviously there's other men and women at your level who are like just at your level right and so when you guys and girls get together do you ever look at that stuff and just be like i would have done this differently like is it easy to monday quarterback your field when other people mess up crime scenes or don't figure out what actually happened yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that, uh, you know, especially when you see it or you go to these some of these conventions or you, you know, you're actually talking to some of the investigators that worked in that and you're asking them questions. You're like, why, why didn't you do that? You know, um, but it's also easy to FOIA stuff too. You know, you can, of course, you can easily FOIA their investigation. You read through it and you're like, well, you're an idiot. Um, or, you know, a lot of times you see it and then obviously the media sucks and, you right. know, you, 
you go, well, you blew that out of proportion just to make a story. Um, or, you know, you have these big time friends and pathologists that are, are in the media and they do it just to make a story. Um, but, but I would say that 95, you know, percent of the people in the field are, are very competent in what they do. Um, and, you know, at the end of the day, when you, when you read a death certificate and if you, if you break it down and you actually read the fine print of them, it says, in my opinion, so none of it's actual fact, even if you're a doctor and you're a forensic pathologist and you do the autopsy and you have a heart, like, I'm, I'll just use something general, like a yeah. heart attack, right? So say someone dies of a heart attack, they get an autopsy, the doctor takes the heart out, the doctor sees that the heart has complete blockage and it's a heart attack, right? An MIMRDO infarct, okay? They take that and this dude's heart didn't beat because all of his arteries are completely blocked, right? So the doctor writes heart attack or MIMRDO infarct, right? It still sets it as an opinion. Oh. It's just an opinion. Right. So no matter what they say on TV, it's just an opinion anyway. It's not fact. So interesting. It is, which is now, crazy. How did, like, we kind of mentioned, like, when you, you've had a majority, a lot of your scenes with children, death, and car seats and stuff. How did that kind of, what push you to kind of make changes and start working with the safe kids program and organizations like that to kind of, I've come across all these seeds. Well, this is the number one culprit why these kids are dying. Like why, why did you feel it's your duty to do that? Because it seems like the people before you were dealing with the same stuff, but they have the initiative to do it. Like, why did you feel like it was time for you to step up and make a change? Well, I got really, really tired of seeing and I hate to call them, you know, basic car accidents, but, you know, motor vehicle collisions happening and there being, you know, infants and one-year-olds and two-year-olds yeah. that would have survived, no doubt, you know, in a, in, in a basic fender bender. I mean, going 20 miles an hour, you know, I mean, you see them all the time on the side of the road, you know, guy stops at a stoplight too sudden because he didn't want to go through the yellow or, yep. you know, the guy makes a right turn. And, you know, here comes the other direction. The cars are coming. So he stops and then he gets rear-ended, you know. But in there, there are babies. There's children. They're not restrained. Baby goes forward, goes through the windshield, hits the steering wheel, hits the dashboard. They're not developed. They're dead. Yep. They're, they're fucking dead. Like, there's, they're not. If it was a 10-year-old, I mean, they're probably going to get a couple of bruises. They're not going to die. Right? Right. And we were seeing, and at least in, in our county, we were seeing, just, it was a huge trend and it was happening a lot. And there's a lot of areas in our county where people just didn't have money. Um, and my work partner and I, uh, Mike, a uh, great guy, you know, hell of a hell of an individual, taught me a lot um, uh, of what I know. Um, and I'm very thankful to him for that. Um you know, I, I talked to him and I said, Hey man, I want to do something about this. And he's like, yeah, I, I think you should. I'm like, well, this is what I'm going to do. A, B, and C. I'm like, you on board? He's like, yeah, let's do it. And so, uh, the two of us went forward to our boss at the time and said, Hey, this is what we're going to do. And this is what we want to do. Do you support it? And he said, absolutely. And so we, uh, went forward, we went through the training um, and we ended up going out and getting people to donate seats. 
Um, we then held like an, uh, we had so many seats in our department. We didn't actually have enough room for it. So we got some hospitals to, uh, you know, open up some storage for us. Um, and people would come by, they would show us that they didn't have money. Yep. You didn't have to show us they, they drove their car and we could tell what, you know, like, look, you obviously need some help. We'd come out, we'd give them a seat. We'd show them how to properly install it. We'd send them on their way, you know? And then we got to the point where we went to each hospital labor and delivery unit and showed them how to properly install seats and then said, hey, what you guys should start doing is when someone has a baby, whether they can afford one or not, go out there, make sure they understand how to properly install a safety seat and don't let them leave that hospital until they prove that. Right. So that's what they started doing. Um, and if they can't afford one, we gave all the hospitals safety seats. We gave all of the fire departments safety seats. We gave all the police departments safety seats because, you know, you come up upon a, a, a collision and, you know, what are the cops doing? You know, mom and dad were just transported to the hospital. Okay. Or mom's transported to the hospital. They've got baby. Where's baby going? Baby's going to the police station. So, you know, child protective services can take care of the baby until mom's better. Right. But how are the cops transporting the kid? Correct. What do you think they're doing? On the lap, right? Yeah, on the lap or while driving and calling. Yeah, how in fucking and... how safe is that? Right? No. But how else are they gonna do it? Correct. Right. So we were donating seats. So if they had that incident, they had a way to transport. When we did that, man, we were barely getting any child deaths and safe because because everybody knew you could come to us and get a seat yeah. and we'll show you how to do it. You know? So it made a real big deal. Next election came around, we had a big asshole that became the elected official he stopped the program um he said it was a waste of taxpayer dollars of having us helping people the guy was a prick i mean yeah i could sit here forever and tell you how big of an asshole this guy was but let me tell you when the guy kicks it i'm throwing a party yeah um uh, he stopped the program and then you know you know the numbers went up again but uh while we had the program running it was awesome safe kids chicago uh, we worked with a woman named Jessica. Um, she was awesome getting that set up. Um, it was a very successful program. I'm glad we did it. So great. Now you also work with canine units. Is there a specific crime scene that the dogs find super difficult or is it based on their tray and stuff? They're able to kind of go through, like I've pictured arson being a tough one for a dog to kind of do its best job. So my dog um, did not do narcotic work. Uh, my dog did um, cadaver, firearm recovery, and tracking. Um, so, um, but yeah, so we did have a, a pretty difficult scene that nobody realized because arson. It was an it, well, it wasn't an arson case. We had a pretty bad explosion in our county in um, in Waukegan, um, and it was a chemical plant that blew up. And what we realized, um, everyone kind of that was in there died. And we were looking yeah. for body parts at that point. And what we realized was that our dogs were not trained to find cadaver flesh that was masked by different kinds of, you know, fluids and stuff. Yeah. Um, and we've had, I mean, I, you know, my dog was pretty much pure cadaver. So obviously, you know, he, he was like, okay, it's in this area. But it, like when my dog was deployed for cadaver, he'd be like, the body's right here. Let's dig. And then we'd find the body. You know, the body's right here. Here's the body. Right. My dog was like, 
you know, looking around, like looking at me, like, like it's here. Yeah. Somewhere, you know? And then, so we were like, okay. So then the other dogs in the County that had some good average training would come in. Same thing. Not, not one dog was like, it's here. And so we realized that we never really trained for that. Right. Um, so I think now they're doing some training and the people that do our training here are awesome. So it's, it has not any fault of theirs. I think it's just that we never had that scenario. Right. Um, so we never had that. Um, cause our, our dogs in this County, um, especially for tracking and drugs and stuff like that, they're awesome. They're really, really good dogs. Have if you do, what's the biggest trend right now for, uh, like drug related death right now in your area? I mean, fentanyl is on the rise, I think, everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, everybody's cutting everything with fentanyl. Um, you know, even when I was a DEA for a few years, um, you know, it was fentanyl is just, it was on, it, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and it, the, the, the part that I find funny about fentanyl is that, you know, such tiny amount will kill you. Yep. Why are these drug dealers even doing it? Isn't the point of being, and I'm not, obviously not a drug dealer. Don't you want you your know, repeat customers? Like it but I'm a businessman. I'm right. a businessman. Um, and I want my customers to come back. So I don't know. I mean, I understand they're thinning it out to make more money, but I'm not going to thin it out with something to kill you. What happened to back in the day of thinning out with like ibuprofen, right? Right. Like, <laughs> why are you putting, <laughs> why are you putting shit in there that's killing people? Like you want people to come back. I right. don't get it. But now when you're obviously in law enforcement, you have in-service training, whether it's shooting, uh, EMT type stuff, driving, when it comes to specific to the, what your work, like your certifications you get, whether it's looking at blood patterns or arson type stuff, does that training, how long does that training last? And how often do you have to kind of go back in there to kind of get recertified? Like how often does stuff change in the course of your career when you get certified and say blood analysis? So like blood stain pattern analysis, uh, that training that uh, we went to was, don't quote me on this, but I think that that was a big one. Oh, so my, Mike and I, my partner, we went out to San Bernardino County yep. for that, um, and that was a national certification that we took. Um, I believe that was three months long. That was a pretty long training because that was one of those things where you're training for, uh, you know, you're able to say, you know, there's blood on the wall. Here's the pattern. Here's the angle of which the person was hit by a bat or uh, they were shot. Here's how far away from the wall they were. Here's the angle at which they were hit. Here's the size of the object. Here's how many times they were struck. Um, you know, and we could tell you all of that just based on the blood on the wall. Right. Um, so uh, it's an awesome class. Um, however, there is no recertification. We never had to go back. Gotcha. And, you know, you know, the, the training and the trends, I'm sure are always, you know, there's always new stuff. So I'm sure if I went to the class today, I'm going to learn more than I did then. Um, right. Um, I'm retired now, so I'm not going to any classes, but uh I'm sure that uh, they would learn more, but there's never any uh, going again to learn, to, to, to redo it. So once you're certified, you're certified. When you were in it at the height of it, what was the biggest technological advancement you've seen from when you first started to when you were at the height of your career in that? Wow. Um, honestly, it's probably anything narcotic related. Gotcha. Um, because, and, and that's not even for me. I would say that's more for the toxicology uh, people. Um, because for us, it was, you, you know, finding it unseen, um, and we'd still bag it as evidence and tag it as evidence and put in the evidence locker, submit it to the evidence room manager and, you know, do all that. It, it, it's the toxicologists 
that had to keep up with the trends of that because you know they're ones that that are testing for it and all the stuff that was coming from you know china where they you know they change one tiny element of it to change the whole compound uh you know those are the folks that i feel really had to keep up with that change more than than we did um and of course there was uh you know as you can see in in um that the media as far as you know hands-on type stuff yes and, uh you know things like that obviously were are, are constantly changing of what's acceptable and what's not acceptable um at least in the eyes of the media we'll say right now when you like in terms of like uh would like as like today like everyone's like so hyper focused i think maybe because we're all home for the pandemic maybe but shows like forensic files or unsolved mysteries or like all these crime scene documentaries or jeffrey dahmer stuff whatever these famous crime scene cases that go unsolved or they whatever they get solved but it's still people are so drawn to your like your career type stuff in crime scenes like why is that do we all have this kind of switch in our head or just drawn to something we could never do ourselves like on either side of it, like it's just so peculiar to me because my cousins and I will late night watch every episode of Forensic Files where we're together drinking, and we we laugh. We know how the cases are going to end. We know they find the spit in the rain puddle or the toenail clipping in the the burnt pile. <laughs> and but we're just like, why we why as humans we draw to that type of stuff? It's fascinating. I mean, I I mean I have one of my uh, stories in here is actually a Forensic Files um story. So um that that's in this book um but it's fascinating stuff you know it, it, and it's it's that it's that weirdness it's the peculiar you know because they're not going to pick up like you know you know your timmy the neighbor that that od'd on cocaine or Correct. or johnny the guy that hung himself next door you know they they don't care about that they want to know god that's kind of strange god that's got a weird twist to it that's right. tv right it makes it makes good tv so that's the kind of stuff that they want and and it draws you to it. It's like any other TV show that you watch on Netflix or, or on HBO or NBC or whatever you watch, you know, that interests you. Uh, that's what that's for. It's it's the stuff that pulls you in. I like when they dramatize that stuff and kind of replay what possibly happened. And like, <laughs> I would love to see that guy that crucified himself. I mean, I, I would, I would just that's love not, to see. It's so funny you bring that up because of all the, like the whacked out stories in there. You're the first one to bring that story up. I, I think it's because I've done a few interviews on some, on some podcasts, you know, and, and even on my podcast, the episodes that I've done so far and, you know, people have talked about, you're the first one to bring it up. And I think it's hilarious. I think it's great. I mean, I like that you like that story that there's someone that brings it's just, up something. I, I, and I think why, because a couple of months prior, I just watched the Glimmer Man, the Seagal movie. Well, one of the guys kills couples and crucifies them in their houses. And I think back when I saw, I've seen that movie a hundred times. I'm like, oh, whatever. It's Seagal snapping decks, some stupid crime story, right? But then I read <laughs> yeah. your book and I, that comes up again. I'm like, holy shit, was this movie based on people that, do this stuff and i'm just like it's it, i don't know it's just because i am very religious and i find the idea what crucifixion actually represents is something very important to me but to see some idiot do this and then you have to go in there and do your job because this moron thinks he's the next coming of christ it's just it's just it's super interesting to me i mean i mean you think about too the pain this guy went through to, i mean oh the, the thickness and caliber of nail i remember i mean it was, dude, I mean, that went through his feet were like, I mean, I don't know the gauge, but that shit was thick. 
And for him to pound that through his feet and then through his other arm was like, and then he just obviously starved himself to death is what it was. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, there wasn't that much blood. There wasn't. So it's not like, I don't think he bled out. You know, he was just so, so thin, you know, by the time we got to him that. Dear God. Tell us a little bit about the Road Death Travel podcast you have and kind of where can people find it and kind of if people tune in for episodes, like what can they expect? Yeah, so the Road Death Travel podcast, um, it, it's on uh, YouTube if you want to watch it, except for episode one. For some reason, they took it down, and I don't know why. It's no different than any of the other episodes. Um, it's on Spotify, and it, we just put it up on Apple. So those are the three places you can watch it. Um, you can go to trdtmedia.com and see everything as well. Um, so we talk about different stories in the book. Um, yeah, the guy that did all the drawings for here, yep. um, uh, Great he artwork. is, oh, he's dude, his stuff is amazing. He does all my editing as well for the podcast. And he's also now my co-host. Um, he's kind of a little bit twisted. He's a, re- he's a religious guy himself. Um, which is why I was kind of shocked that he wanted to be the co-host. Um, but he does a great job. Um, he's got a twisted sense of humor too. So uh, he does all that. So uh, we talk about stuff in the book. However, every so many four or five episodes or so, we do have a special guest. And that special guest is somebody um, from the military um, that 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 did something pretty cool or that, that had yeah. quite the career. Um, and I want to do that just you know, I was in and, and I and I have some friends that are uh, that did some pretty cool things. My my first guest was John Lynch or sorry, Al Lynch. God, he's going to kill me. Um, it's uh, it's Al Lynch. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. He lives in the area. Uh, he's a Medal of Honor recipient, which uh, anyone awesome. who knows yeah. what that is, that's uh, the highest award you can get in the military it can only be given by the president. Um, you do not win that. You are awarded that for all of you listening out there. Um, so you can go watch that episode to to win that. My next episode is um, another good friend of mine who was a Navy SEAL for 34 years. Um, that's the next one. Uh, the episode after that is another guy who was a SEAL. We can talk about that offline on who that is. I'm not giving that out uh, until that comes out. Um, and then after that, we've got uh, some army guys that did some pretty cool things that had a movie name uh, done after them. So, oh wow, um, we've got some pretty good uh, big name guests coming out um, on the horizon, and there's some more too. So, um, but we figured that after we run out of all these stories, we're going to then start picking up some interesting stories from the news and talk about those. Um, eventually, the goal um is hopefully to get a mini series done whether it's netflix or hulu or yeah. somebody we feel and everyone who's read this book and i don't know how you feel but everybody who's read the book has said man this really needs to be on tv because these stories each episode could be its own 30 minute oh, episode 100%. Or, or whatever so um you know the fact that there's people out there who are making money um i i think uh, crime junkies is one of them. There, there's yep. a woman out there and, uh, you know, good for her. I mean, she's out there making millions of dollars touring, um, doing, uh, you know, podcasts about true crime. Um, I just, it's, it's just weird. Like she's never worked the job. She's never done this. She's just taking stories from the news and talking about them. Which for um, you, she's using other people's stories. You've actually done these stories and been there and you're right. You, you're that person attached to them. I think that's where, people would be like, oh shit, like this is, 
Jason actually found this guy. Oh God. Like I want to hear this. Right. And you know, so if people are out there and they want to ask questions, you know, I think it would be neat for me to be able to tour and make these shows and, you know, people can go, Hey, you know, I'm going to tell you the story about this. Who's got questions. Yeah. You know, so that's my goal with all this. That's, that's, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to do this. Plus I think people need to hear this stuff. This is real life. These things actually happen to people. Um, and I think it's important because, you know, people, you know, you sit around the party. I'm sure you've been there, you know, you tour with these really cool bands, man. These are bands that like, uh, De- was it Def Leppard? Motley Crue? Yeah, Motley Crue. Motley Crue, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, man, I've always wanted to see these guys. You know, I've, I've I grew up listening to them, you know. I, I can't imagine. You probably go to a party like, man, tell me some stuff backstage. Tell me what it's like. What happens? Tell me some cool yeah, stories. I, you know? Yeah, you get dumb to it, right? You get dumb yeah, to it. Yeah, but people ask you, you know, like, what's the coolest thing you've seen backstage? You know, tell me what it's like on the bus, you know? Uh, you know, I go to a party. Ah, oh, tell me the coolest scene you've ever seen. Right. Again, right. You know, here, read the book. You'll you'll see the coolest thing. I've but ever I, I'd be that guy at a party with. I was with you. We're drinking whiskey. I'd be like, oh, dude, Jason, this is about you. Got to tell Jason, tell the story about the guy with the crucifix. But yeah. you, like, you have stories like that for me, where as someone might go to me like asking questions, I'd go to you. Oh my god, tell me about the crime scene. Or like, I'm, it's just it's just weird. It's kind of cool how people are just. So I guess we're so dumb to what we actually do or what our careers are that I, I, I'm very hyper-focused and appreciative of other people's careers. And I find stuff that whether they're an office manager or a, a doctor or a lawyer, like tell me about what you do. Cause it's super, cause I don't do this stuff. Tell me about it. Cause I'm interested. And in I think this, there's something cool to that. Yeah, no, I'm the same way. Let's just like, I mean, we talked offline a little bit, but I mean, I think your life, you know, even I know we follow each other like on Instagram, but you know, this, the, the places you go and the people you meet and, you know, just being able to hear awesome music all the time. And, you know, that to me is like, I love live music. I love meeting yeah. new people all the time. I love the idea of still, you know, being able to protect people or, you know, that, you know, that life to me is just awesome. I mean, yeah. I'm very interested in it. So I feel the same way you do. I think it's just super cool. So, you know, that's so awesome. awesome. You'll have like to come out cool. to, uh, come out to a show and, there won't be any crime scenes, uh, knock yet. Uh, hey. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> so before I let you go, any plans to another book? I know you tell, you talked about kind of like making this like a, like a film or TV show type thing, but like how much, when it came to the editing process for your book, how were you able to simplify it to such a very impactful, like less than a hundred pages? Um, are there less? No, there's, ah. Ah, see, that's the cool thing about the book. Also, I wanted to let everybody know. See, no one, Less no one yet. Hard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna clue every everybody in here. You're, you're the. Uh, I said at one podcast, I'm going to uh, release this, and you know, I'm gonna do it on yours, man. I'm gonna let the world know my little secret about this book. There's almost 200 pages, but do you know how many pages there are exactly? And I did it on purpose. Check it out real quick. You have it in front of you. How many pages are there? What's that last page number? With numbers, page numbers, numbers. Are, uh, 187. Yeah. What does that mean? Uh, is that law enforcement? Come on, man. In LA, that's murder. Yeah. But 187 is a murder, man. That's rad, man. So I did that on purpose. Um, I kind of like uh, rearranged some stuff so there could be exactly 187 pages. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, I don't know, but no one probably knows. I mean, to me, I just thought it was like a nerdy thing to do, but no, it's great. Uh, <laughs> um, now, look at it now, it makes sense to have me talk to you. 
Um, but as far as a second book goes, uh, I've been asked to do one. I just don't know if I honestly have it in me to do another one. Yeah. This was such this was such a hard long process to do. I had well over five hundred publishers tell me no. Which is crazy. Uh it is, but it's not. And I understand. So they all came back and said, you know, obviously no, 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 no. And in my mind, I went, do you know how many people told the author of Harry Potter no? Probably double. You're crazy. Thousands. Yes. Thousands. Yes. No. Right? So I was like, I'm not going to take no for answer. I'm going to keep going. I kept getting letters, emails. No, no, no. And so finally, one of them said to me, no, no, no. And I was like, and I would, I emailed her, sent everyone back and tell me why. No one would ex- respond. I got no responses. But finally, a publisher called me. One of the publishers actually called me. I said, why? Why can't you publish my book? What's wrong with my book? I said, well, we did some research and no one has ever written a book like this in this format. <laughs> and somebody who has actually done this. We we have forensic pathologists who have done books. We have you know police detectives who have written books. We don't have a law enforcement officer who specialized in forensics who has written a book in cases that they actually did. Not to mention this format. There's nothing, you know, the tie, the, these stories don't start with anything. They don't really end with anything. All you're doing here is you're just writing what happened and that's it. Next story. I said, well, I did it on purpose. There's a reason I did that. Right. I explained my reason. And they're like, yeah, we're not interested. That that's this this is not gonna sell. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, then eventually a publisher in Colorado said, Congratulations, we're accepting your book. I was like, Thanks. Uh, and then I took second place in the country for uh new authors in true crime nonfiction. Um awesome. and you know, I just you know, yeah. thanks. Uh so and uh, I also took second place for artwork. So uh, Rob Tovar, um, you know, who did all my stuff. This was a big credit to him as yeah. well. Um, he <laughs> dude's awesome in what he does. So if anybody out there needs artwork or or any sort of editing done, um, the Captain's Willow is his company. Uh, his name is Rob Tovar Jr. He's awesome. That's so, great. But as far as getting another book, I, I've been asked. I I just don't know if I want to invest another three years of uh writing yeah it's a lot and doing it so now i was able to pick mine up obviously on amazon but where else can they go is there a specific web store or site that you want to direct people to sure so if you're in i'm in uh lake county illinois which is kind of near chicago it's halfway between chicago and milwaukee um so the barnes and nobles in my area does carry it um they are spreading more and more barnes and nobles around the country are starting to carry it now yep um or you if you go to trdtmedia.com you can get it directly from me and I can sign it for you and ship it to you direct. So if you want a signed book, uh, you want an author's copy signed, I will. I do not charge for that. I know for some reason authors do charge for that, which I think is crazy. Um, but I will sign it to you uh, for no charge and mail it out to you. Um, otherwise, you can get it on Amazon. That is a that is a, a choice. Those are uh, the, the ways you can get it. So trdtmedia.com. You, uh, you can also pick up some t-shirts if you want there. I only have two available right now. There should be uh, by the end of season one, about 10 to 15 available, but yeah, those are your options. Oh, that's awesome. Well, uh, thank you for this. Thank you for your service in both military and law enforcement. And uh, 
I wish you uh, continued success with everything. Thanks, brother. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it, man. I love your podcast. I love listening to it. And and I'm really uh, jealous of what you do every day, man. I really am, man. You'll uh, really have am. to come out to a show in a major area. You can kind of see what, uh, what it's all about. For sure, man. Awesome. Thank you, sir. Thanks, brother. Oh, hello. I'm just enjoying this nice fucking candle. Anyways, I'm John, the host of Spirit Talk, and I want to talk to you about nice fucking candles. We are lucky to have nice fucking candles as a sponsor of the podcast. And if you use code SPEARTALK15, you get 15% off your first order. Or use the affiliate link below to always get your candle needs through nice fucking candles. Nice fucking candles are 100% soy wax. They have a 65-hour burn time, maybe more, if you uh, nurse the flame a little bit. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not an expert on flames uh, or candles. But I will say, these things burn a long fucking time. You ask me about the wick. It's a double wick for even burning, which is amazing. And uh, they come with three incredible flavors. Uh, I'm not sure if you're going to be eating these candles, but if you do like them, the scents are eucalyptus and ginseng, tobacco and fireside, and seaside and driftwood. Once again, uh, nice fucking candles. They are the candle company for Spear Talk. And if you love candles and need a good scent to clear out your office, your room, your podcast room, your weight room, uh, your whatever you're doing in a room that smells like crap, use this candle. It's amazing. Thank you. Check them out. Love nice fucking candles. Emily Roger, and I host a leadership show called The Boiling Point with my co-host, Dave Vale. Together, we sit down with trailblazing entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and movement makers who are driving meaningful change in our world. The show is all about exploring the lives and perspectives of leaders who are making a difference. Join us for insightful conversations that challenge the status quo, spark new ideas, and inspire you to take action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or at BoilingPointPodcast.com. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.